You're listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I'm pleased to welcome today Joshua Schwartz. Joshua is a engineering professor at Trinity University, and he also recently had uh, his first article published in Colette. Joshua, welcome to the program. Or Josh, sorry. <laughs> Josh is fine. Thanks for having um, me. Yeah. So uh, where I like to start off each episode with each guest, um, we're going to cover a wide range of topics. But uh, the first question is, how would you describe yourself ideology ideologically? Um, so uh, I guess I could I could lean on um, some some sort of uh, labels and stuff. I'm usually sure. uncomfortable with, with throwing okay. out there and saying that's me. Yep. Um, heterodoxy would seem to be almost like a cliche these days. Uh, mm. I like I'm a I'm a buffet style cherry picking uh, liberal type. Okay. I um, I've always identified with liberalism more so than conservatism. I, I would say I probably would have a voting record, uh, voting for Democrats, although I only became an American this year. Uh, this is okay. Congratulations for joining the party. I, I lived 30 years in Canada and then I moved here and I've been here 10 years and it's, it's a strange thing during a pandemic to suddenly become a citizen, but here I am, uh, very motivated to vote. And so, um, ideologically speaking, um, you know, I'm all over the map, but I can say that um, as, as a fan of, of John Haidt's work in moral foundations theory, yeah, it's, I've taken his your morals test. Um, and, and I love thinking about it because it really uh, it situates me well. Uh, for your listeners um, who may not be familiar with it, um, the idea is to evaluate a person based on how they think about um, issues of care and harm, issues of fairness, uh, of loyalty, of authority, and purity. And um, one interesting thing that his research showed across the board is conservative score, almost like a solid three, even on each one, each mm-hmm. one balanced palette of things. Um, and uh, a score of 3.0 is kind of the average there. And the Democrats or the, sorry, I should say liberals, I don't want to conflate those things, score high on harm and fairness and low on the others. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I'm a typical, I fall into that category. Very low on purity, I score, I, I score a 0.5 for whatever yeah. reason. The, the, uh, when they were handing out morality, um, I came to care absolutely not for a okay. second to get purity. <laughs> Got it. That's what it is. Um, yeah, so that leads me to my next question. I know you use uh, Jonathan Haidt's book in your class that you teach, which is outside of engineering at Trinity, uh, called What You Know That Just Ain't So. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm so fortunate to be able to teach this course um, and surprised somewhat that they gave me permission to do so. Um, having no particular training, I am just... Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned something about the humanities, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an enthusiast who, uh, who grabbed the microphone. Um, I, I saw an opportunity uh, to teach this course, and it was originally a course about science and pseudoscience uh, really geared towards uh, talking about you know, ESP, astrology, why do people okay. do these interesting things? And um, once I sort of took ownership of the course um, with the, the previous coordinator having kind of rotated off, um, I, I leaned it more in the direction of exploring really why people believe weird things that they believe, um, going into ideology, uh, exploring psychology, philosophy, you name it. And, and mm-hmm. I 
my co-instructors are from all these disciplines. So I okay. act as a point person for a, a group of academics who are from various uh, relevant uh, disciplines. And I can read. Um, I sure. love uh, reading what's the latest research in these areas and, and you know, what do what are the uh, big figures talking about these days in those areas. So, um, but the what we know that just ain't so very popular topic. Students uh, overwhelmingly want to take this class when they come to our university. They mm-hmm. have students from a, from a, a, a you know really wide range of topics, and this is the top choice. And I think they realize that this you know this quest this burning question of why do people believe all these unusual things um, is really uh, at the forefront now of a lot of the the discourse. Okay. Yeah. So I think yeah, for sure. Nice. And I, I think it's very relevant as well. I mean, there's the question of why anyone would be willing to storm the Capitol as they did five days ago. Uh, and there's also the question of why I think uh, 8% of the country said they supported it in a poll that I saw, which is yeah. just wild. Um, <laughs> although it maps, I guess, to other uh, polls that show, you know, willingness to believe conspiracy theories. It's definitely, um, I guess, I don't know if it's a growing trend. It's always been there, but um, yeah. Do you get into the history, I guess, of like different um, rates at which people believe something like astrology or others, things like that? Well, we start with the flat earth. And, um, you know, when I started teaching this course four years ago, I used the flat earth as a punchline, as something we all can agree on. Mm -hmm. Little did I know that the next year there'd be the first annual flat earther convention. Wow. Um, which I think really speaks to the moment. So I've changed how I teach that, but I still teach it in the first week because I, I, I view it as a point where I'm going to get 100% agreement that this is crazy yep. from yep. class. And as I go through the, uh, the weeks of the course, we slowly move towards topics where by the end of the course, I'd say we're looking at topics where I can get 50% uh, believing one thing and 50% who believe the other in okay. actual discussion. So I ratchet it up. But yeah, I, I watch the poll numbers. I like to see, uh, I pull my class. I want to see what they believe. Um, and there's always, there's always a troll or two. You get what, when, when, with these polls, when you say 8% believe uh-huh. in starting the capital, to me, that's, there's a 4%, what's called a lizard man coefficient, which okay. 4% of people to agree that lizard people are. Oh, right. Right. So there, there's always some, some, some trollishness or tribal signaling. Sure. So 8% strikes me as, hey, that's good. We can agree. This is generally a bad thing. You're not going to get better numbers. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so next I'd like to talk about the article that was just published in Quillette that you wrote, um, your first article there uh, or anywhere, I think. And uh, anywhere. Yeah. yeah, why don't you just uh, sort of summarize the argument that you're making? So uh, that argument emerged from my uh, chair at the department tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Dr. Schwartz, please teach something about contemporary issues to the engineers. And I taught it for a few years on this or that issue, but eventually turned towards just an observation of mine that our technology uh, hasn't really changed dramatically uh, in the past several decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know anyone hearing that would go, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, but but it, it really relies on me narrowing what I'm exactly what I'm talking about, being very specific. That I'm talking about the kinds of technologies that penetrate into everyone's household to the extent that if you don't have one, you're either in, impoverished or something is is quirky about you. You know. Okay. If you look at again kitchens from the 1970s, transportation from the 1970s, 
uh, we're not doing things terribly different. If someone were propelled from the 1970s into now 50 years through time, they wouldn't be surprised by that much. They'd look at our phones and go, this is a marvel. Mm-hmm. The internet would be spectacular to them. But I, I really think things have uh, slowed down in terms of technological development. And to, to make that argument, I compare it to another period of time. I, I go, I hop in the time machine, I go 100 years ago. And I compare it to what happened in, let's say, a 20-year span of time there. Uh, and pick any 20-year span uh, around the end of the you know, 19th century, early 20th century. And you'll see amazing I mean, discoveries that we now look at and go, wow, that's just in everyone. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine my life without zippers or, uh, you know, uh, these sorts of things that um, were, were intuitive, low-hanging fruit have all been picked. Um, back in that day, a lone engineer could be working in their basement, uncovering something uh, astonishing. Fundamental forces were being discovered about electromagnetism and so forth. You know, all those fundamental discoveries, they got picked. And, and I kind of think we are now um, seeing a kind of slowdown in the sense that our, our ability to radically reinvent paradigms has, um, has been compromised. It's just that, you know, the fruit, there's a limited number of fruit in the garden. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to argue to people is that there's only some things that are physically possible. The Star Trek transporter is one of those things. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, someone can come at me and say, well, you never know, Dr. Schwartz. And I say, well, you know, uh, I see more researchers alive today, active than ever before, more patents being filed than ever before. We've got, um, you know, in, in terms of sheer numbers of effort, wild capabilities, like the internet, which was not a capability we had 50 years ago. Uh, I can Google anything and pull up any research in like two seconds. I don't need to go to the library. Why is it that we haven't discovered anything as smashingly breakthrough as the car? Uh, as these other things, you know, I would, I would argue the internet was the last big thing, the last big break. Mm-hmm. Um, and the internet should have unlocked the door to everything. Um, and instead we've got Twitter. Uh, instead we've got uh, a lot of distractions, diversions. Um, there are key areas where, where I do think, yes, you know, we're always improving medicine. We're always improving, uh, making better this, better that, but it's just, it's not revolutionary. It's improving. Mm-hmm. It's iterations. It's not innovations. Um, and I have a very narrow definition of the word, and so I can argue all day about that. But um, yep. you know, I'm, I'm arguing the future is not the Jetsons. The future is, um, you know, is is this um, kind of going stuff. to Mars? Maybe going no, but even that is not a household. I mean, NASA for for That's all true. going to the moon wasn't. It was a wonderful symbol. It was mm-hmm. an important thing symbolically for people to do. But hey, I enjoy my mattress, which is made of the material that they found during their space age research. Mm-hmm. Tempur-Pedic stuff that I sleep on is fantastic. That to me is it's just one of these wonderful spin-off technologies. Okay. And it's in the article. But you know, again, going to Mars doesn't substantially change the game. And I my bet, the thing if I'm putting money down, I'm putting money down on the idea that if I got in a tele a transporter to the future and popped out 50 years later, I'm gonna look around and yeah, there'll be some weird things. There'll be more Google Glassy things and uh, mm-hmm. gadgets. But I don't, I don't think that I would be too alien to what will be in 50 years. Uh, in the sense, yeah. I think a typical household is going to look like a typical household. Yeah, so I think 
uh, got a couple of thoughts. One, the Google Glass you mentioned, and I was actually happy that didn't go anywhere because I thought it showed people's intuitions about what they're comfortable with and having a camera that you never really know if it's off um, on someone's face <laughs> was something they were not comfortable with. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, in addition to like, how distracted do you need to be? You have your phone already. Um, yeah. So uh, there are some technologies that are possible, but not necessarily what we seem to want, which I think is good. Um, yeah, I guess another thing, you know, reimagining paradigms. Um, I guess my field is computer science. I have two degrees in it. I've been doing software engineering for a while. And I definitely agree with you that a lot of innovation there is sort of um, just iterating on a theme. Like machine learning is something, for example, that if you look at the theory behind it, it's been around for a few decades. Um, and it's really just the hardware advances that have given us you know, some revolutionary stuff, um, such as like GPT-3, um, which I would consider innovative, um, but they're relatively few and far between. And I think like personally, I like to think innovatively, I'm not gonna say I'm a terribly creative person um, in terms of software engineering, but I think what you have to do to come up with something innovative is question like, rock bottom assumptions uh, yeah. in, in terms of just what people are used to thinking. And I, I think when I think about design, there are so many different trade-offs in the software space. And I imagine it's roughly similar in other engineering spaces that you sort of make assumptions as to which ones are right. Like for example, cloud computing is really huge. If you wanna start a web application, you're almost certainly going to make it on the cloud today. It might not be right for every web application, but it's a safe bet. And so people are willing to make safe bets if they know that they can continue exploiting and exploiting that safe bet to make more money. But eventually innovation comes from when someone says, oh, no, maybe we want to do something different and it actually pays off. Does that sound roughly right to you? Yeah, I, I was thinking as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the, um, the sort of things that get taken for granted in certain fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, as just the status quo, and, and in particular, in light of the replication crisis that's gone on, lots mm, of mm-hmm. shockwaves of that sort of stuff suggest that a lot of things like um, statistical significance as a measure of whether your your work is your finding is important, right. not, which is, we're taken for granted for a long time, and now people are realizing, wow, this really wasn't a great metric uh, to by you. itself, at least, you know. Yeah, like, there's. I'm reading right now a wonderful book, Science Fictions, by Stuart Ritchie. Uh, where he has, uh, I think, aptly described the, the various pitfalls of, um, of the institution of science, not the scientific, okay. but the, the, the human institution uh, as, as practiced by, by humans like ourselves. Yep. <clears throat> so speaking of institutions, I guess one question is what the relationship of government to academia to business is because I think a lot of times innovations such as the internet start out coming from one place, you know, in this case, like DARPA and then g- being spread. You mean um, it doesn't come from Al Gore? <laughs> <laughs> so, Sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's f- funny because people say he literally said he invented the internet and I don't think he quite <laughs> literally said that. In the no, same, it wasn't yeah. his intention. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, like, I don't like Al Gore 
particularly, but I, I'm always willing to defend someone against misinterpretation. Um, let's see. Uh, but no, so yeah, innovations um, and where they come from. Uh, Alan Kay is a computer scientist, um, could credibly be argued to be at least one of the people that invented the graphical user interface uh, at Xerox Park. And one of the things that he said in the 70s was the amount of money that the government was willing to spend um, uh, or no, I'm sorry, it was the sixties and because of defense research, um, and just sort of large amounts of money throw out, thrown at scientists without too much direction. Um, and he, he argues that we need more of that. Um, he was talking about more recent work with the NSF and they were always very goal directed and saying like, what is this going to provide? And he argues that we need to just explore what's possible and have government funding that. Um, what do you think about that? Um, I say no. I say the opposite. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think that we uh, that that was actually the right move at the time. Okay. Reason I say is if you're looking at an S-shaped curve of technological development, then at the beginning, exactly what you want to do is throw a whole bunch of money into the wind and and, and invite um, basic research in this and that direction um, to see what you come up with because the field is wide open. So it's like the gate, the garden of of of, of Eden, full of the fruits with all these wonderful fruits to grab. Um, and you just say, well, go, go forth, grab, grab whatever you can grab. Um, at this point, though, with all the low-hanging fruit seemingly picked, again, that's my, that's my mm. presentation of things, you need a much more focused strategy. In other words, you need to build ladders to reach the high fruits, which takes some sort of direct, directed effort. Um, you need to know, okay, our next goal is this, our next goal is that. And wild exploring um, strikes me as wasteful in a time okay. where we need to be reining in uh, expenses in all directions. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I just find that sort of research. I say, look, we want to improve human flourishing. I get it. Um, and maybe there are some spectacular discoveries of fusion. If they get fusion working, yeah. hey, I'll be a happy, uh, happy camper. But, you know, aside from a few dedicated directions like medicine, energy, and so forth, um, I say, look, a lot of this stuff, the going to Mars stuff, uh, that can wait. You know, why don't we, I, I, of course, I'm just watching a film about an asteroid hitting. So now I'm all like, okay, invest in the asteroid defense program. But uh, I, I, again, directed, directed research strikes me as just much better at this point for okay. where we are. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, thinking about innovation in uh, politics and policy, um, I think we kind of see a similar trend in that you know, at least as far as the Republican Party goes, um, they're, they've basically just been repeating um, what Reagan said over and over, at least until Trump. Um, and I don't um, voted against him twice. I'm not a fan of him at all. But uh, he was, <laughs> as Peter Thiel said, he was certainly disruptive. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, yeah. And so I think we don't, um, like part of me wants to be optimistic about uh innovation in terms of uh, policy. But as you know, I had Matt Lewis on here and he said that might have happened during the Obama admin when serious Republicans and conservatives came up with something. Um, but instead, they just went the complete opposite direction of boiling down on their own version, I think, of identity politics. So it it seems to me like I don't know where and this, this is what concerns me more than innovation and engineering 
because if we don't get policy and politics right, we don't get a lot of things right. And we see things get even worse. So it seems to me like people are, maybe it's because people are just older in policy and politics in general. Um, they're not, they're comfortable with the way things are um, more than, you know, per, you know, personally I am uh, not to be ageist about it, but I think there is something to that when, you reach certainly when you're in your seventies, you're not thinking of new bright ideas and say, Oh, let's try this. Um, you're pretty much repeating the same old thing. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm worried about the lack of policy innovation and in politics, but at the same time, I don't have a good uh, answer for it. What do you think? I, well, I, I do think the, the arena of politics is one where I, I do think lots of innovation is, is, is possible and desirable. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, um, I mean, I'm a big supporter of people who think a little bit outside the box, like Andrew Yang. I kind of like his, um, his pitch, uh, the way he's approaching things. Yeah. Um, the idea of a basic income is to me almost a logical outgrowth of my own argument about innovation mm -hmm. being on the wane and well, what do we do with all these people? We have, um, so much productivity, so much wealth that we are now uh, in the position where we don't need all these people. We have a lot of these people. We, how do we give a, such a person, um, uh, you know, a, a means to fulfill their needs, both in the material sense and also in the sense of dignity? Mm -hmm. Those are, those are two different problems. I think UBI helps to solve the material problem uh, without necessarily addressing the dignity or sort of spiritual problem of what, it, what is, what, what gives someone meaning, but, sure. you know, I, I, am not optimistic about, you know, what unemployment is going to look like in 10 or 15 years. And, um, I don't know how much of that is going to be the robots taking over. I mean, my father drove a truck, uh, would he, uh, would he, his job have been, you know, replaced by a significant mm -hmm. powerful AI, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about that sort of phenomenon to some extent, it might be overstated a bit, um, as far as how much of a real threat it is. But I, I do think there's a certain um, problem when you, you see the kind of bifurcation of jobs, the, the high skilled and the low skilled with the sort of medium uh, skilled jobs vapor mm -hmm. uh, to automation. Um, and in the past in history, there's always been a bailout. There's always been, not a, not a government bailout. I mean, there's always been a sector that has emerged okay. to provide employment. So when agriculture right. went under, uh, you know, there was a time when everyone was working in agriculture and farming was, was something, you know, through a rock and hit a farmer, but then, uh, everyone, um, that went to college, then that became the thing. And, you know, you suddenly have a changing job market. Uh, something new came up to replace the old. You didn't need as many people to operate a farm. Um, but suddenly we need people to, I don't know, be human computers and start, you know, punching cards. Right. Um, I don't know if there's going to be that, um, that cushion under the next one, you know, mm -hmm. I worry that the next one will happen and there won't be anything waiting there for people to land on. Um, and that's why in terms of policy innovations, I'd like to think about ways that we can retain the fire of capitalism. I am a capitalist, mm -hmm. uh, retain the desire to um, do things to improve one's lot while also making sure that there's a floor under people um, and I think it can have broad political appeal. And here's where I come to the political okay. yep. is that I see things to like in it for people all across the moral foundations, if you will. I see that a libertarian might like it 
because it encourages people to be wise with their money. If you give someone a thousand dollars every month that if they fail with that, that's on them. They screwed up, you know, and in other words, that's the kind of you take responsibility uh, with your money and you can't blame your failure on anyone else. That might have some appeal on the right end of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Left end, you're helping people. So, you know, you could pitch that in different ways. Um, And I see uh, less resistance to Yang's approach than I would see to, let's say, you know, the AOC type uh, or Green New Deal type approach. So as far as helping people, I want those sorts of solutions that can get buy-in. You know, I Mm -hmm. want I want a, a, an environmental or green policy that takes nuclear seriously. And I think Republicans could have delivered it. Um, the Democrats treat that uh, issue, nuclear uh, energy, as, as, as radioactive, no pun intended. Um, but I, I think that there's a squandered opportunity for Republicans who sure. are nuclear to take that football and run with it and say, our climate policy is better than yours because yep. we've got this zero emissions, yeah, that's a great zero point. emissions solution. So um, why not provide them with the opportunity uh, to do that? Um, I keep hoping beyond hope that there'll be enough. Um, uh, some, at some point, the Republicans will say, we got to own this issue to the, and, and we can win with it. Uh, we can be, take a lead instead of always playing defense to the de- Democrats who, oh, oh, they care so much. They say, no, you should, be, you should be out in front on this and s- telling the population, hey, we got a better idea than they do. Yeah, I think politicians, especially nowadays, tend to listen to donors and consultants. <laughs> and um, the I've heard political commentators that have a lot more familiarity with the consultant class than I do. Is like basically when they win, they take all the credit, and when they lose, they say, "Ah, well, it was the climate we were going to lose anyway." <laughs> um, so I'm not yeah. sure how much actual value. I think as a as a net. Uh, a net value added to society, they're negative um, because they discourage innovation um, by just focus group testing and poll testing everything. Um, mm. And yeah, I would actually argue that's one of the reasons Trump succeeded is because he obviously was not doing that. Um, and also because else. all the political energy is on the wings. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's true as wings. well. The people who care the most are tend to be the most extreme. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to bring the conversation now to uh, your conversation with Rod Graham about um, merit and meritocracy. I really like that uh, interview he did with you. Um, I think y'all made some good points. Um, where I'm coming from, I guess liberals tend to criticize maybe conservatives for saying, you know, either we have a meritocracy or, or at least at the very least a meritocracy is possible, right? And I think there are good arguments against meritocracy as being you know we we obviously don't all start out in life in the same place <laughs> um and we don't end up there either per se um but at the same time i would i would argue it's not about whether a meritocracy exists but how meritocratic a system is right um and i i think at the, at the start of the country it was a lot less meritocratic for a variety of reasons although we had some notion at least uh, amongst uh whites of being a classless society more so than europe um i think is accurate to say um and then and that we've retained that um you know we, we definitely have problems to some degree with um discrimination or other forms and other ways in which society is unfair uh but at the same time 
I guess my personal vision is of a society that is as meritocratic as possible. Um, what do you think about that? I agree that it's a useful North Star uh, to, to guide mm -hmm. policy towards, but it's also an unattainable thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that everyone just by virtue of who your parents are has, has different um, you know, capabilities will, will, you know, will go somewhere different. I was just reading a wonderful study just today about the non-cognitive, uh, that's to say not related to intelligence factors that influence educational attainment. Sure. Um, such as being open to experiences or being a conscientious person or all those things. And was surprised to see that they actually collectively outranked um, uh, sort of cognitive intelligence okay. as, as, a, as a determinant of opening of, of, of educational attainment. Those things aren't up to people. Um, even, and this is where you really, if you're a determinist sort of like myself, you pop people's balloons because they say, well, at least I'm, I'm choosing to be a hard worker. And I'm like, not even, you know, <laughs> and yeah. so I even say, you know, um, how much did you uh, determine that? Was your, were your parents hardworking? Well, bravo, maybe you're a hard worker because your parents were hardworking. So to, to what extent people really uh, attribute those things to some active decision that someone has made, I, I don't know. Um, I, get, I, I understand why that's a useful way to conceptualize things, but I also think it, it can, in its own way, cause uh, undue harm. Mm. Um, so I, I, I like the idea of meritocratic world. Hey, you know, every, every society that's existed has always had to solve the problem of what do you do to the free riders, the ones who just want to mm -hmm. and do nothing and, and milk the milk the system uh, using precious resources who don't want to contribute. Um, but if you if you connect that into my innovation rant, you okay. get to a point where you realize, well, to some extent, there are people we don't need. Um, we're not living in that desperate hand to mouth state of affairs that humanity once was. Um, why does it really bother me and the next person? that someone down the block is getting a handout and is sitting on their butt. Um, as long as I can go out and better my life and work hard and get rewarded for that hard work, to me, the, the free rider problem is, a, is an interesting one. It's a bit of a holdover from our evolution, if you want to get down to it. And I, and I wonder um, whether that animosity towards someone who, who maybe through their own choices uh, or not choices, if you look at it my way, has, um, you know, has sort of no inroads towards, no ambition towards growing themselves as a person. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, what do we, what do we do with the people who don't? I, you know, I don't want them to live in misery. Um, I don't, my happiness is not conditional on them, uh, you know, busting their butts, doing some hard work. I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm of the mind that that's an unhealthy way to take that on. Um, mm -hmm. No, I don't know. How do you feel about again? Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting question. As you were talking, I thought, you know, uh, to some extent, I think you can say that AI and other advances, in manufacturing, etc., have decreased the need for human labor. Uh, but at the same time, we still see a lot of forms of suffering, um, a lot of inefficiencies in systems, and I would argue that, you know, it. And both in, in terms of a fair society being in which people do their f fair share in terms of material value, um, in addition to that, 
being willing to at least, you know, I don't know, volunteer somewhere, um, at, whether it's at a, a soup kitchen or at a hospital or something like, you know, tying, I guess may, I would be more inclined to tie material benefits to something like that, uh, right? Where, because we do, I mean, as a society, we clearly have not reached utopia yet. And I, we have a ways to um, yeah, we do, we do. And I think that ultimately it's like a moral and spiritual question to me, but as far as public policy goes, I would say that just allowing people to be free riders, I can see maybe a utilitarian benefit in the, in the short term, but as, as in the long term, like thinking down the line, it actually is not good to have that as, as a basic policy. That's what I would say. It is risky. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the studies coming out, the early studies about things like universal basic income seem to suggest that most people don't really drop out of work. In other words, they don't really mm -hmm. drop the, the desire to be doing something to contribute. Um, what I don't know is just how many lazy bums there are out there. <laughs> yeah. If you were to do this, uh, would we undercut sort of uh, some basic services that um, where we need people to kind of be doing this drudgery work? Um, so I, I, I hold that out there as a, as a far future thing. And, and I like Andrew Yang because he's forward thinking. And I, if mm -hmm. I had money down on it, I'd say he'd one day be president. He's a young guy. He's got lots of times time ahead of him. But yeah, well, first we have to see if he can make New York mayor. So yeah, we'll see. Um, um, yeah. I'm optimistic anyway. Um, but uh, hard to hate the guy. I've seen some people. Try. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, nice <laughs> I, I think that's right. Definitely. Um, I would prefer him to Biden, but uh, at the same time, I think, well, I won't get into that. I don't know. Uh, I guess I, I would, I think he was unique um, in terms of his ability to make a broad public appeal. I think he actually revealed how much there's a certain class of people like, like the Yang gang who are interested in more technocratic arguments, but most mm -hmm. people aren't. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of uh, a demonstration of both what is and is not possible. And he was the first candidate of his kind, I think. So maybe mm -hmm. we'll see more people like him. It's uh, a good question. I'm culturally biased towards him, though. He he plays video games and he, you know, right. same references that I. Oh, have. yeah. No. So like, and, and like he got <laughs> he he rose to stardom through the Internet. Right. Um, and there's people who like i mean everyone uses the internet but people who live on it um and uh like joe rogan watching etc so um yeah all right well my closing question that i like to end the show with is can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought you know you might have a point um i get mixed up in a lot of twitter arguments um and and uh, you know in the past while i've i've softened a bit on um one in particular which is um uh, you know, there's a thought of talk about whether we should strive towards equal opportunity or equal outcomes. Um, and I have long been a kind of equal opportunity guy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of pounding the table and saying, you know, outcomes don't tell you anything. Um, they don't tell you, uh, you know, whether an injustice uh, has been pro propagated or not. Um, and so I would always pound the table for, for equal opportunity until it was pointed out to me that, um, you know, the things that I believe in, like UBI, and creating a basic kind of floor for everyone, um, but that is sort of an equal outcome. You know, if everyone has healthcare, that's an equal outcome, and I like that outcome. Uh, so, so I'm I've I've given that point to my to my critics, and now I don't use mm -hmm. the anymore of equal. It's a language thing. I don't talk about you know 
equal opportunity, equal outcome, I realize it means different things to different people. Okay. From my standpoint, creating that safety net under people is an equal opportunity thing. From theirs, it's equal outcome thing. Uh, you know, who cares? This is just a label. As long as it's, yep. as as it's a smart Makes one, sense. it can get political support. That's great. Um, other, other things uh, where I've had to concede points. Um, this is a big one. Uh, it might take me a few minutes to unpack. Sure. Just the idea that, um, you know, if you want to correct a disparity, uh, do you do so? Let's, let's, let's talk about, let's say, whether this is a gender disparity or a racial disparity. Do you do so in a way that is um, uh, conscious of the groups and of the disparity or in a neutral kind of rising tide raises all ships kind of way? And um, for, for a long time, my approach has been to beat the drum for a kind of neutral or blind approach to this. Mm-hmm. We say, look, treat the problem. If the problem is, um, you know, poverty, then treat poverty. If the problem is incarceration, treat incarceration. Um, but, uh, you know, I also think that I have to give some points to my critics, uh, especially Dr. Rod Graham, who, who I argue about this mm-hmm. uh, on this subject all the time. And I give him points because, you know, you can look at the past, let's say, 50 years, the post-civil rights era, and say, we've tried that approach, uh, hasn't worked in some areas. And in the sense that the past 50 years has seen no progress on, let's say, the racial gap in wealth mm-hmm. in households, between Black households and white households. So if, you, if, you, if that's what a neutral outcome does, then I can't blame someone who says, no, thank you. Let's try something more targeted. Um, and even though I have philosophical issues going there, uh, you know, I, I recognize that it must be frustrating uh, to watch 50 years of, of supposedly neutral uh, policy, uh, you know, continue that um, to, to show that disparity is there. So, so I, you know, I'm not entirely moved over, but I'm, I'm sympathetic now to that um, kind of argument. Boy, it didn't take that long after all. <laughs> yeah, well summarized. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Josh Schwartz, thank you for coming on. You might have a point. Thanks for having me, Steve. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.